10 through 18. Wrong page. Never mind. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the power of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm, then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit of all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on the praying <coughs> for all the Lord's people. Well, you can be seated, and we're going to dismiss our kids to Children's Church. Oh, Steve, you're too old. And when I was putting this, uh, this sermon schedule together, the whole idea of God with us and fleshing that out, and, um, and it just occurred to me uh, during that time frame, you know, it's not just God who's with us. There, there are other forces in this world that are active and are evil. And um, so when I told, uh, when I told Rhoda the, the, um, the sermon title for the bulletin, she's like, I don't like that. I said, I don't either, but it's true, and we've got to deal with it. Um, I'm reading through, uh, we're reading through a book at, at home um, by Bob Goff called Love Does, and I'm, I'm in it for the second time, and, and he starts one of his chapters uh, with, um, I hate it that my spell checker on my computer makes me put a capital S on Satan. It gives him too much credit and too much respect. <laughs> I thought, well, that's, that's a great point. We have... Um, in our English language, taken Satan, taken the word devil, and we've somehow, we've made it um, a title, we've made it a name, and you can talk about Satan like it's his first name, or you can talk about the devil like he's the, he's the capital T, the top dog devil, um, or maybe the bottom rung, depending on their perspective. I, mean, I don't know. Um, Maybe the lower you get, the better you are in the, in the underworld. Anyhow, um, there's, and, and some people you might call um, Prince of Darkness, um, Lucifer, which is really, again, kind of an unfortunate transliteration from a Latin, which is Luce Fair, which is Morning Star. And so he has no name. This figure we're talking about this morning who was with us too has no proper name. He's not given a name. He's not given the, the respect and dignity of being named. He is, or it is, I keep saying he, it is, he's an adversary. He's the accuser. Those are what those two words mean. Satan, when, when Jesus was talking to Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan, Jesus wasn't 
calling Peter the devil. He was saying, you're in my way. You're my adversary right now. You need to get behind me and follow. He's also the accuser. He's the one that stands before the throne and accuses us of all kinds of things. And God says, no, they're covered by the blood of my son. Or they're not. So we have these misconceptions uh, about this figure, this biblical figure, who's very prominent in the biblical story. Um, so we're going to talk about more of this. When I, I, get, I get together with my, um, my preacher friends most every Thursday morning over coffee, and I, I pitched this idea to them. Uh, I said, what, what, if I, um, what if I did this Satan's sermon like first person? Like, what if I tried to be first person Satan? And they looked at me like, it's your career. <laughs> Whatever you want to do, pal. I mean, I, okay, so I'm not going to do that. I just thought, well, that's a little, that, maybe that's a little beyond what's, uh, what could be okay. Um, but Scripture talks a lot about, about the devil or about the Satan. And um, here's, here's a few Scriptures. John 8, 44, Jesus talks to these people. He says, you're of the, you're, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. There's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar, and he's the father of lies. John 10, again, Jesus talking, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And he says, I came that they might have life and have it overflowing and abundant. This may be more familiar to you. First Peter 5, 8. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Second Corinthians eleven fourteen says, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He doesn't come at you all, you know, with pitchfork and horns and a tail and a red suit. You know, he'd, he's a little smarter, a little more subtle. In fact, sometimes he dresses up like something good. So there's just a tad. I mean, and there are tons more um, scriptures that we could talk about. He's a deceiver. He filled um, Judas's heart. He entered Judas Iscariot. And in Acts 5, he he filled Ananias's heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. He can be resisted. In Romans 16, it talks about God using our feet to crush him. I kind of like that. Um, and then um, the question, the question people pose, and I think, they, the, I think the question is posed to try and discredit the, the Christianity, or to, to, to discredit God. Like, did God create the devil? Huh? <laughs> you know, the implication is, if he's responsible, then he's on the hook for all this bad stuff. Well, the answer is, yes. I mean, God created everything. Genesis 3, if we can turn back to the, the beginning of the Bible, page 1 or 2, it makes it pretty clear, and there's no reason to shy away from it. Genesis 3, verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. So yeah, while he made everything, and he made this character, he made him good to begin with. 
everything was good to begin with. This person in free will made his own choices and took a lot of heavenly beings, spiritual beings, with him, as we'll see. But I don't want to spend all my time just talking about this character. I want to put it in a context that I think will help us understand the whole of the biblical story. Because the devil isn't just something or someone who wants you to, bat, who wants you to do bad things in order to take you to a bad place. I mean, we've kind of boiled it down to that. It's kind of almost cartoony in some ways. But to understand the devil's mission in the world, we have to understand what God first intended. And so I'm going to take you to Genesis 1, where there's this creation chapter or two. And in a correlation that I've really never seen, this is maybe, I don't think it's a sideline, but it is a bit of a, uh, of a, oh wow, I didn't know that kind of moment. Day, you, and, and this is maybe crowd participation time. On day one, what did God make? Say again, I can't hear you. Heaven and earth, but let there be light. Okay, and light was good. Everybody say good. Good, okay. Correspond that to day four. I'm skipping ahead. Day four, and you can look it up. I mean, it's okay. You can look in your Bibles, day four. What, what, what was made in day four? Stars and sun and moon. Okay, so lights. Lights to rule the day, lights to rule the night. He made light. Day four, stars, planets, sun. Day two, what did he make? What did he do? He spaced between the waters, the atmosphere. He made sky and water. Day five, what did he make? Hmm? Birds and, and fish. So in the sky and the water, he put birds and fish, sky flyers and water swarmers. Okay, so day three, he made something appear and trees, dry land, and vegetation. And day six, animals, livestock, all living things that crawl along the ground. I've never seen that before, okay? Light, sun, moon, and stars. Atmosphere, sky and water, birds and fish. Vegetation and dry land, creatures of the ground, everything that moves, livestock and all the animals. And on day six, he made humans. And in Genesis 1.28, it talks about these humans were made in the image of God and they were made to rule and reign in God's good world. They were given responsibility. They were to work the garden, the ground. They had oversight and responsibility for all that God had made. Psalm 8, if you want to put your thumb wherever, Psalm 8 tells this story. It, it gives it some more context and some more poetry involved. Psalm 8 talks about the glory of, of God in all the earth, But then, you know, this person writing this, David's writing this, um, and in verse 3, he considers the heavens, the work of of your fingers, the moon and stars which you've set in place, and he asks the question, have you ever, like, sat underneath all the stars 
and it's a beautiful summer night, and you think, man, I'm so small. We are just so small out here. And he asked the question, what are people that you think about them? I mean, we're just, I mean, next to all this, we're just like so tiny, so insignificant seemingly. What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. But he said, you made them, you made him a little lower than, my Bible says, heavenly beings. Yours might say angels. I think heavenly spiritual beings is probably a little more broad category, maybe a little better. You made him ruler. Wait, I'm, I skipped one. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Well, how did, how did God crown humans with glory and honor? He put them in charge of everything that he made. And he begins to, to talk about this. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. You put him as ruler and authority over everything that, that he had made. This is the original intention of the creator God to exalt humans as protector, as steward, as those alongside him in ruling his creation. This is our calling and vocation, to care for his good world. Everything is under the dominion and authority of man and woman at that time. This, was, this is God's initial idea of what is, what is good. He said he made them in the image of God. Now that, that phrase might mess with your head. What does that mean, in the image of God? It's we are his representatives. We are his reflection in the world. Now we are not God in the sense that he is all sovereign and all powerful, but we are his face to the world. We, are his, we, are, we carry his name. We carry his message. We are his character to creation. That's our calling and vocation. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And Jesus came along, God in the flesh, as son of man and son of God at the same time. The perfect human. The image of God in the best possible way. And I love this. At John chapter 14, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and then Philip gets the idea and says, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. And Jesus says something that just blows his mind. Jesus said, have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? What's he saying? He's saying, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How can you say, show me the Father? Look at me. That's what Jesus says. He's the perfect example of the human in the image of God, walking the earth. So when people say, I want to be like Jesus, <laughs> do you know that's what you're talking about? You're not just talking about being good. You're talking about being the image of God, reflecting to the world the character and the nature and the love and the, and the power of God in the world. That's what we're saying when we say we want to be like Jesus. Colossians 1 says, He is the image, that is Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. And Hebrews 1 says it even more. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. 
the exact representation of his being, your, your version might say. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is the initial plan. This was what it was supposed to be all about. God created everything, said, you humans, you're to be in charge. You're going to rule and reign alongside me. But then, turn the page in Genesis 1 and you tap past chapter 2 and you've got chapter 3. I don't think it's any accident that it was a beast who got Eve deceived. I mean, it was one of the beasts of the field that tempted her and, and there's all kinds of theories about, you know, did it have legs at first? Because then God cursed it and it had to crawl on its belly. But who knows, you know. Was it, was it the devil in the form of a snake or does the devil look like a snake? I don't know. But it was a serpent that God had made. However that all panned out, <laughs> he talked to her. And the, I find it incredible that the first thing that she, the first reaction that um, Eve has isn't, ah, a talking snake. <laughs> I mean, really, wouldn't that be your reaction? Snake comes out of a tree, you're looking at this fruit, and he goes, say, that looks pretty good, doesn't it? You'd be like, no way, man, I am not touching you, I'm not touching that, I'm out of here. You know, that would be my reaction. But her reaction is like, hmm, you're right. You know, I, What? It makes me wonder if C.S. Lewis actually got it right that animals did talk in Narnia. You know what I mean? I don't get it, but that's the way my brain works. I don't, I don't know. Sometimes we get so used to the story, we don't think of the obvious. Like a talking snake, okay. But it was one of these places where the devil put something in front of the woman. Did God really say... You shouldn't eat from any tree of the garden? Well, of course not. We may eat from the fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden or you will die. You won't surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God in knowing good and evil. Did he lie to her? No. They knew good and evil, all right. After she did it, after he did it, they were very aware of good and evil, and their eyes were open, like, ah, oh, you got no clothes on. Kind of awkward for a minute until they got some leaves, you know, whatever. But he, he didn't tell them the, the whole thing. The, the irony here is that the beast that Adam and Eve were supposed to have dominion over told them what to do, and they listened. The irony is that he told them, you're going to be like God. They were already in the image of God. Perfect and whole. He told them, you'll know stuff. They already knew everything they needed to know. But they convinced, the beast convinced them to reach for more than they were given. They weren't content. And they thought they were getting more. They thought God was holding out on them. I don't know what exactly happened, but in being in trying to reach to be like more like God, they became beasts themselves. And they began killing each other. And they began building beast-like kingdoms. Hello. Beast-like kingdoms that 
Am I gone now? Is that totally gone? That kill and hurt yet today. Yep, there we are. Revelation 12 tells this story in a little more detail. I'm going from Genesis to Revelation pretty fast. And if you ever want a different take on the Christmas story, read Revelation 12, because it's in here. The first six verses are are a, a poetic description of the birth of Christ and how the dragon wanted to kill the child. And we all know the Christmas story enough that, you know, Herod did try to kill the babies, the baby, the baby, ended up killing a bunch of babies. The woman fled into the desert, prepared for her by God. But then verse 7, and there was a war in heaven. Now the time, the timeline here isn't as important as the facts that are happening. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Now, I don't know why God didn't throw him like on Pluto or something. That would have been maybe nice, but he threw him to the earth. Verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who'd been given, who'd given birth to the male child. Okay, And the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so she might fly to a place prepared for her in the desert where she'd be taken, taken care of, out of the serpent's reach. And it talks about some more conflict here. The earth gets involved, the water's involved. Verse 17, the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Who's the offspring? those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So we, we went from the woman being looking a lot like Mary to the church, to the people of God, pretty seamlessly. And the dragon makes war against us. We are in a battle. Satan's biggest trick was to get humans not to do bad things. Satan's biggest trick was to get humans to forget who they are. And they were cre- that they were created for, for an amazing role in the world. But they were to settle. He tricked them into settling for lesser things. To, to striving after things, temporary things like happiness or security or anything earthbound. And I don't know if anybody does a better job at um, describing the, Satan's role in the world outside of Scripture. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, you understand what I'm talking about. And if you don't, um, get a used copy and, and, and read. Because what C.S. Lewis does is he takes a, a senior-level demon named Screwtape, and the book consists of a bunch of letters that Screwtape writes to his nephew, 
a little demon in training named Wormwood. And in that book, he describes his role as a trainer of young demons to trip up all the people up upon the surface. And the letters that he writes give great insight as to the devil's schemes. Amazing types of, I mean, you've got to get in the devil's head to write a book like that and then come out. And so here's, here's a bit of um, example and so, I mean, if, imagine you're, you're reading this letter. You're, you're, a little, you're a young demon in training. Your uncle is a big demon up, up the ranks, and he's more experienced. And so what his, his wording is going to be different. When he talks about the enemy above, he's talking about God. It's all upside down. So here's, here's a paragraph. And he's giving this young demon advice on how to trip up his patient, who has now become a Christian, Okay? So here's Screwtape talking to Wormwood. You must ask what use the enemy wants to make of his life and then do the opposite. It may surprise you to learn that, that his, that is the enemy above, his efforts to get permanent possession of a soul, he relies on the valleys more than the mountains. And some of his special favorites have gone through longer and deeper valleys than anyone else. The reason is this. To us, to the demons, human is food. Our aim is the absorption of its will into ours, the increase of our own self at its expense. But the obedience to which the enemy demands of men is quite a different thing. One must face the fact that all this talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not just propaganda, but it's an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself, creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be like his, not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons and daughters. We want to suck it all in. He wants to give it out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. Our war in the, is a world in which our father below has drawn all in their beings to himself. The enemy wants a world full of beings united to him, but still distinct. And this couple of sentences... I thought was worth sharing. Don't be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he's been forsaken and still obeys. The devil is threatened when we look around and we're like, where is God? I can't see anything. I don't know what's going on. And we still do what he asks. That's a huge threat to the enemy below. And we need to be aware of his schemes. Here's another example. This is from a guy named Kevin DeYoung. And he wrote his own screw tape letter. And here's some, ex- some excerpts. I won't read you the whole thing because it's too long. <clears throat> but when... When this guy wrote his own screw tape letter, he wrote this. Church attendance is bad enough, nephew. 
but consistent church attendance at the same church spells doom for our cause. If your human persists in his church interest, you must simply devise some way to shuffle him around from congregation to congregation. See to it he never knows the people he's worshiping with. Keep reminding him how rotten the music is and how long the sermon was over there and how bland the coffee is at that other church. Trust me, it won't take him too long to get floundering on church. Any excuse will do. Apparently, this patient of his is a college student, so take that in context. College students are nothing if if not critical. They're trained in it daily. Use this to your advantage, my dear boy. If your subject's determined to go to church, make sure he searches for the perfect church. And within a few weeks, he'll be fast asleep on a Sunday morning, much to our father's delight. Speaking of sleep, do whatever you can to keep your subject out late on Saturdays. Drink, girls, football, video games, homework, doesn't matter. Just keep him awake. You know perfectly well how our father below insists on busyness at all costs and how terribly he depends on sleep deprivation for his work. It's a well-known fact among higher ranks of devildom that silly humans suspect our interference in the big things like death and accidents. They never expect that our work consists mostly in distraction. So don't neglect our demonic bread and butter. Make Friday a fun day and Saturday a waste. He'll have no choice but to sleep on Sunday and use the rest of his day for classwork on Monday. Keep up the discipline, my dear Wormwood. There's three things that this letter talks about that the devil uses, and he puts them into pretty great detail. Three things. One is keep them separate. Don't let them get together. And if they do, make sure it's so superficial it doesn't even matter. Make sure they're alone. Make sure they don't get together for substantive prayer and service. Keep them separate. The second S is to keep them selfish, which is easy for us, isn't it? I mean, it's easy for us to get selfish. Make sure that we're just about ourselves. And um, he, he says about, about church involvement, um, Church must be forsworn away at all cost. It's at church where he'll see examples of lived out bravery and sacrifice. And more importantly, it's at church where he'll have to face his own selfishness. He'll encounter music he doesn't like and old people who do strange things and babies who smell and cry. <laughs> Incidentally, I only mention babies because your subject is male. A female youth, I am told, must not under any circumstances be surrounded by small children. These children entice the females to revisit church rather than repulse them. <laughs> My point is that so long, as, so long as the spiritual experience of our subjects can be catered to the whims and fancies of an 18-year-old, the students will not likely stick with a church where they discover that churches must also deal with the whims and fancies of 8-year-olds and grandparents. Keep them selfish. And the third S is keep them searching. Keep them solo, separate, keep them selfish, and keep them searching. He says, don't in any way allow for your subject to consider commitment or service or what they call accountability. If he must be interested in God, keep it on the outside. Let him come and go wherever he wants, whatever venue suits him for the day. But see to it, he makes no promises, no commitments, no investment. And the unlikely event that you can't prevent such blunders, make sure there's no one in his life to hold him to his promises and commitments, especially those who are older and wiser. Sounds like good strategy for the demonic. So here's where the homework comes in. 
So I'm going to give everybody a blank piece of paper that starts with my dearest Wormwood and ends with devilishly yours, Uncle Screwtape. So I need some hands to pass these out. I need enough. I think everybody gets one. Help me out, bud. Thanks. Anybody else want to help me out here? Carly, can you take one of these? You're in charge of this section over here. You got the middle. Okay. Who wants the back? Come on, Reed. Come up. Come get it. Be my delivery people. Thank you. This is an exercise in sheer honesty. You really have to figure out what does the devil have on me? What does he use to his advantage? And this takes some prayer. It really does take the Holy Spirit's conviction. How many of you are really good at seeing your blind spots? They're called blind spots for a reason. My suggestion is, if you have anybody else in the house, if you have a spouse in the house, and you write this, have him or her read it. If they're laughing, you didn't get it right. My hope is that this little 15, 20-minute, however long you want to take it, spiritual exercise of prayer and insight will help dismantle a stronghold that the devil has on your life. And you'll be able to address it. The Spirit will be able to tell you and help you be free of it. Whether it's, I don't even know what it might be for you. So what do we do about it? Well, first, if you're in Christ, it helps to know, Romans 8, 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If, you're, if, you're, if you have placed faith in Christ and you've given your life over to him and you know you're forgiven and cleansed, Your condemnation is gone. It was taken on the cross of Christ for you. I think some of us who are Christians live as if our our condemnation is just one sin away. And that's a lie of the devil too. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. He came to remedy the thing that was, that was all busted up by our own choices. Our greatest defense is to rest and take refuge in our God-given identity, given to us by faith in Christ as children of God. This does not make you immune from suffering. It does make you immune from condemnation. So stop believing what people say or what they mean when they say, well, I'm only human. No. No, you're a human. You're acting subhuman. You were made in the image of God and you cashed that in for being like a beast. You traded down. Realize who you are and who God has made you to be in your very nature his image to the world, his representative. And how 
does this all happen? It is only through Jesus. Only through Jesus can this take place. Here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and following. Since, therefore, the children, which is us, share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, people like you and me. Therefore, he, that is Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, a representative to God, in the service of God, to make, that's a big word, atonement of sins, propitiation. He was the substitute for us. He took on the punishment for our sin. For because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those of us who are being tempted. And there will be final judgment for the devil. Here it is in Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. And there's like 15,000 different ideas about what that looks like and, and when it happens. But there's a gathering for battle. There's a gathering for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, that is, his church, and the beloved city, which is another way to say the church in the general. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them before the battle even started. And the devil, who had been deceived, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. There will be a judgment. There will be an end to this thing that's been tripping up the world for millennia. He will pay. Our battle plan, our battle plan can be found all over scripture, but I want to point to a couple things. If you're, if you're in Revelation still, flip open to chapter 12 again. There was a part that I skipped when I read that. I'm coming back to it now. Revelation 12, verse 10. I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. Who is he talking about, the accuser? The devil. He's been hurled down. They, the Christians, those who bear his name, overcame him. How? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Understand this one thing. You can't beat the devil. You've tried, I'm sure, on your own. You've tried to beat the devil and you can't do it. Why? Because it's the blood of the lamb that defeated him and will defeat him. So that is our first defense. We're covered 
Our sins are paid for by the blood of the Lamb, Christ on the cross and his resurrection. But it also says, and the word of their testimony. It's not just faith in Christ. It is acting on it. Faith is dead without works. We're covered by this blood of the Lamb, but we also tell about this. We're to give word about this, how this has changed us, and we bear the image of God and the message of God into the world. We overcame because of the blood of the Lamb, and we keep talking about it. We keep living it out. And then there's this text that Emma read for us. We got to get dressed. We got to get our armor on. Here's where it hits in Ephesians 6. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Hear this, please. We need to hear this, church. Your struggle is not against flesh and blood. Your struggle is not against your employer. Your struggle is not against your, your, your neighbor. Your, your struggle is not against the county commissioners. Your struggle is not against anybody here that you can name that you've got a problem with. That's not your enemy. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood. That's not our main enemy. We wrestle against the rulers, authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You're to love your neighbor, even if he wants a wind turbine on his land, and you don't. You're to love your neighbor, even if they have a different political point of view than you do. You're to love your neighbor. Even in the face of opposition, you're to love your neighbor. I can't make that more clear because your battle's not against them. It's against the devil who wants to separate and keep you selfish. That's where the battle is. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So, and here's all the ingredients. The belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, shoes for your feet, that you can take the gospel of peace places. Shield of faith, which extinguishes these flaming arrows of the evil one. And then the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And to be in prayer at all times. This is your armor. This is how you get yourself ready for battle. And how does that happen? It, it can't happen by yourself. It can't happen just on your own. You've got to be with other people. This, this is maybe the hardest part about it. And so you were wondering, when's he going to talk about connection groups again? This is it. Because I, we, we, really, we, we very much believe that within that kind of, of community, there can be that accountability. There can be the calling to something better and, and deeper there can be obedience and someone check how are you doing with that? Or you're not going to get that in the big room. Not nearly as much. Not intentionally. You might have a friend who might check on you spiritually here and there, and we all need those. But in a group like this, it's designed for the, each of us to be support for one another. 
because the devil is on the rampage to keep us apart. And the devil is attacking our families. He's attacking our marriages. He's causing stress in our homes by any way possible. And so I'm going to invite you to uh, this thing I talked about last week, uh, this couple checkup. And if you read your, uh, your newsletter, um, all my article was, was instructions about how to sign up and how to start this thing. I've got 25 copies here that I'd love to give out to anybody who wants it. Starting today, you can sign in, make your own account, and you and your spouse can take this online assessment. It'll take you a little bit of time, you know, block out half an hour or something. And each of you take this separately, and you'll get your results immediately. And that can be huge fodder for conversation and help for you and as all of us continue to do this, what, what the couple checkup will give me is a group report. No names, no ID. I don't know who's doing what. I get group stats. I get uh, trends, and I get all kinds of you know, number kind of things that nerds like me like to get a gauge as to the health and the direction and the needs of our families in our church. And we all come together on March 31st, to talk about it and to pray about it and to celebrate it and to work on it together. You've got all month to take this thing. It'll start today, it'll be done on March 3rd, and then we'll get together on March 31st. I really, I can't, I'm just going to emphasize this again and again and again. The biggest lie of the devil is, oh, you can handle it. Don't worry about this, it'll pass. You know, just keep trying. Don't talk to anybody about it because that's embarrassing. <laughs> you don't want that out. You know, everybody's going to look at you funny if you talk about that. That's what the devil says. And I'm trying to argue with him in your head. <laughs> Get yourselves together. Get us together. Because here's the promise. First John 4, 4. Little children. I love this affectionate term that John gives to us. You are from God and have overcome them. All that evil stuff. You've overcome them. For he who is in you, that is the Holy Spirit of Christ, that is the work of God in your life, he who is in you is greater than he who is running around the world trying to mess things up. Don't forget who you are. Because what you have in you has no chance, I mean, you have no chance of losing against what's out there if you take hold of it, if you run with it, if you let it grow in you, it's going to work. You're going to be fine because he who is in you is greater than. You've got to believe that and you've got to take hold of it. I don't want to give any more attention to the devil than you do, but we do have to be aware of his plans and his schemes. He has no chance of victory unless you give it to him, unless I let him in, unless I give him a foothold and he'll take all kinds of room. Be aware. Don't let him, don't let him catch you sleeping. You know what I mean? You don't let him catch you sleeping because he will. He'll lull you to sleep. Oh, you don't have to worry about that. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be fine. It's going to be fine. Uh-uh. Don't fall for it. Stay vigilant. Your enemy prowls like a roaring lion and he wants to devour you. 
And you may not care right now, but I do. And somebody's going to be by your side if you let them. Let's pray. Father, I'm very aware that in this room, your Holy Spirit's been working, but the devil's been working overtime. He's been trying to distract. He's been trying to, to argue. He's been trying to rationalize. He's been doing all kinds of things. But the, he, has, he has no chance of winning if we don't give him room. Help us to be confident in you, realistic about what he's doing in the world and what he's doing in us and give us humility and the ability to confess and give us uh, strength to fight where we don't have any strength to fight. Wake us up to the battle because it's raging. Open our eyes to see and give us a boldness and a confidence in what you're going to accomplish in us. In Jesus' name, his powerful name, amen.